G'day everyone. I, uh, I must admit I, I wondered if I was going to be like Elijah this morning at church uh, on my own, the, the one person left. So I spoke to people during the week and the number of people had colds and flus and were in isolation and all that. And then as I was laying in bed last night and heard what sounded like a tornado going through on our back windows, I was reminded of Jesus's parable. I was hoping our house hadn't been built on the sand, so, but it, uh, it survived the winds and the rain. Uh, but it's great to be with you. Great also for people at home to be able to join in as well if they're not well. Uh, but let's look at this wonderful chapter of Hebrews. I'm sure you, uh, you find this astounding because I seem so young and so cool. But uh, when I was at primary school, there were no computers at school. Uh, and I don't think that was just because I was in Brisbane. I think that would have been the same if I was in Sydney. Uh, in fact, I remember I went to a new school in year five. I went to lots of different schools. That's another story. But uh, I uh, didn't get expelled from any, uh, but when I went to a new school though in year five, they had a computer lab and we'd go in once a week and for one hour and there were five computers, so a class of 30 would go in, you'd have six sit around the computer uh, and we'd play a game, it was a really simple game, it had no graphics, just words, you'd type in your answer, it was called the lemonade stand game, did anyone else play that at school? The lem- there you go, there you see, the, the lemonade stand game, so you'd enter in how many lemons do you buy, and if it was sunny, you buy more and all that sort of thing, and then you made $25 or whatever, which seemed wonderful when you were in year five. Even when I was at high school, we still hand wrote our essays, even our assignments we did at home. I remember uh, from about year 10 on for big assignments, my mother, God bless her, she would type them up for me on a typewriter. Uh, there's a ty- I was thinking tonight, uh, probably people won't have ever seen a typewriter at 6.30 church, many of them. Uh, and it wasn't until I went to uni in the early 90s that I would type up my assignments using the word processor on our Amstrad computer. Uh, and uh, that's sort of what it might have looked like. The old, uh, in fact, the Amstrad looked much older than that. That's a, that's a modern computer compared to what we had. But uh, if we go back to the typewriter, when you look at a typewriter, you, you can see how it led to the computer, can't you? You can see how they're on the same sort of trajectory. Uh, you can see the typewriter is like the precursor of the greater thing to come, if you like. Uh, but now that you've got the computer, you'd never go back to the typewriter. Anyone who ever used a typewriter would agree with me. Uh, On the typewriter, there was no spell check. And every time you made an error, what did you have to do? You had to pull it out and rip it up and start again or use the liquid paper. And often my assignments, when it was me typing, not my mother, would have liquid paper thicker than two or three sheets of paper over the, you know, how the liquid paper used to work. Uh, And so how much better is it to have the computer? It's really the same thing, but so much better. Uh, And that is something like the picture this chapter of Hebrews paints for us. Old Testament religion was like the typewriter. Uh, It worked, it did its job. It's important to understand that. The the Old Testament religion, it kept talking here, it cleansed the flesh. Uh, It did its job, but it was always pointing forward to something better, something much better to come. And now that the something better has come, you would never go back to the old way. Now that we've got the new covenant brought by Jesus, you would never go back to the old covenant, the typewriter, if you like. Now, as we look at this chapter and look at the way the Old Testament works, some people will love it. Some people find this exciting and uh, exotic and really interesting to make sense of your Old Testament. Others think, why do I need to know about this? But I want to encourage you, stick with it, uh, because by understanding the Old Covenant, we actually come to a better understanding of Jesus and the New Covenant. Uh, So stick with me through to the end. But we're starting in the Old Covenant. So our first heading, Old Covenant Ministry, and this is verses 1 to 10. 
So before Jesus, how did people approach God? Well, look at verse 1. It says, now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was set up. So in the Old Testament, you went to meet with God at the tabernacle, which was a tent that they carried around with them wherever they went. Eventually, that tent became the permanent building of the temple in Jerusalem, but it's the same thing. Uh, But the thing is, they didn't just decide, hey, we need a place to meet with God. Let's build a tent. Let's build a tabernacle. Actually, it was God who gave Moses totally clear blueprints on how to build this tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was actually a model here on earth of the real throne room of God in heaven. I find this incredible. The the tabernacle wasn't random in any sense. It was actually a representation on earth of the heavenly reality. So let's look at last week's passage. Go back to chapter 8 from verse 5. And it says, These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned but he was about to complete the tabernacle for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So every aspect of the tabernacle had to be absolutely right because it was a copy of the heavenly reality. And you can imagine people coming to Moses and saying, why don't we make it that big? Why don't we expand it? Why don't we, we put that in there rather than over there? And he had to say, no, 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 it has to be exactly according to the blueprint. That is not like our church buildings, uh, which are just buildings to give us a place to meet together and do church. Sometimes people joke that they're, they're a rain shelter. Well, ours hasn't worked that well. That's why we've got that little spot over there with wet carpet from overnight from the rain. That's what those chairs are doing. Uh, our, our church building is not holy. Uh, it's not a temple. You can have church in a hall. You can have it under a tree. You can, you can have it wherever you gather. But the tabernacle was different. The tabernacle was designed to be like a little bit of the heavens on earth. It's a scale model of the real place where God sits on his throne. And so these verses in chapter 9 describe what the tabernacle looked like. So look from verse 2. It says, And in the first room, which is called the holy place were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the most holy place. It contained the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant, covered with gold on all sides, and etc., etc., etc. Here is a very basic picture of what it would have looked like. So you can see at the front of the picture is the bigger room. That was the room that uh, where most of the things were kept. But then there was the most holy place. The, it's It shows the curtain open there so you can see into it, but the curtain wouldn't have been open. No one ever saw into that room and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, which is the only thing in that inner room. And so as you look at it, all these things that were in the temple were designed to remind Israel things about God and things about themselves. So the Ark of the Covenant, having that in the tabernacle, that reminded them that God had spoken to them. God had made a promise to them. God had made a covenant with them. The gold jar of manna it talks about, that reminded them how God had provided for them. The, the, the cherubim, the angel-like figures, they reminded them that this is the place of where God is dwelling because the cherubim only dwell in the heavens. Uh, the mercy seat, that was the gold plate that was set over the ark. That was where the priest made the sacrifice. That reminded them God is merciful. God has provided a way for our sins to be paid for, for us to be forgiven. So every aspect of the tabernacle taught them about God. 
Every aspect taught them about God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's glory, God's presence with them. But even as it reminded them of those wonderful things, the way the tabernacle was set up also reminded them of something else, which was their separation from God. You see, all those things were behind a curtain where the people weren't allowed to go. They could hear about it. They could be told this is what's in the tabernacle, but they could never go in the tabernacle. And so it also reminded them that tent in the middle of their camp reminded them God is not to be approached lightly. So look with me at how it talks about it from verse 6. It says, with these things set up this way, the priests enter the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. So only a few people got to go into that outer room there. But then the inner room, look at verse 7. But the high priest alone enters the second room. And he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So if all the objects in there reminded them of God's grace and love and mercy, this reminded them of God's holiness. These rules that totally limited access, they reminded them that sinners like us cannot just wander in and say, G'day God, here I am. Only once a year, only one man, and even then, only after sacrifices for his own sin and for everybody else's sin, only then could this one man go into the model of the heavenly throne room, not even into the real throne room, into the, the model of the throne room, just that. And so every time they went to the tabernacle, it reminded them of these two things. It reminded them, yes, God is with us. God dwells with us. Other people don't have this tent. Yes, God is our God. God loves us. Yes, we can be forgiven for our sin. But also it reminded them there is still a barrier between us and God. So look at how it puts it in verse 8. It said, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. And that's because if you look at verses 9 and 10, the old covenant only dealt with the externals. See, this was the thing with the Old Testament. It worked for a time, but it was always temporary because it would never deal with the heart of the problem. It dealt with the externals, but the problem was the human heart was still sinful. And so we were still waiting for something better. We were waiting for the real solution, which is my next heading. And this covers verses 11 to 15. Thanks, Mukesh. So come with me to verse 11. It says, but, that's always important. Whenever you see the word but in the Bible, it's always important. There used to be that barrier, but now the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come. It's saying, but now the real solution has come. And everything that was part of that old system was just pointing forward to him. What it did imperfectly, Jesus does perfectly. And so look at me at verses 11 to 14. I'm going to read them in full. It says, In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. 
I hope you see what it's saying. It's drawing out all the ways Jesus is better. All the ways what Jesus has done is better than what happened under the old covenant. And I'll draw out just four of them. They went into the earthly copy. Jesus goes in to the heavenly reality, into the true presence of God. They offered a sacrifice of goats and calves. Jesus offered himself, the perfect sinless man as our sacrifice. They had to do it year after year after year. Jesus has done it once and for all. And they dealt with the exterior. They washed the flesh, if you like. Jesus has dealt with the core of a problem, our sinful heart. As you look at those verses, what are the key words in those verses? Just scan down, verses 11 to 15. What are the key words? They're the words that are about time. They're the words that are about time because that is the big difference between the old covenant and the new. The old covenant over and over and over and over again had to do the same things. The key words in those verses are once and for all, eternal salvation. You see, it's, those, it's the reality of time that has changed. Jesus' death has dealt with our sin once and for all. That's why it's better. Jesus' death has washed us clean once and for all. That's why it's better. His death has brought an eternal salvation. That's why it's better. No more priests, no more sacrifices, no more tabernacles, no more temples. We have Jesus. Now, I've left commenting on this up until this point in the book of Hebrews. The thing with the book of Hebrews is it deals with things repetitively. But now is a good time to address it. This, this is why you do not need a priest anymore to approach God. This is why you do not need a priest. The time for priests is gone. You don't need another person to to stand between you and God when you have Jesus. That's why I'd rather you call me a minister or a pastor or just Phil. My job is to teach you. My job is to point you to Jesus. He is your priest. I'm not your priest. He is your priest. This is why we don't pray to Mary. This is why we don't pray to the saints. Why would you do that when you have direct access through Jesus? This is why we have to be careful of putting the wrong emphasis on the Lord's Supper, as if something magical is happening when we share the bread and the wine, especially that idea that somehow Jesus' body is being sacrificed again and again and again. No, the Lord's Supper is about pointing us back to the death that matters, the once for all death of Jesus on our behalf. I've said a few times through this series, our temptation is not the same as theirs. I've said a few times that, that very few of us attempted to turn back to Old Testament religion. Mike joked a couple of weeks ago that not many of us attempted to get a ticket to Jerusalem and go and try and worship on the Temple Mount. But actually, that temptation is there. Sometimes I talk to people and they want church to be more about rituals and less about the Word. They want church to be more mystical. They want to turn back to a religion that focuses on the externals and the rituals rather than on a living faith in Jesus. See, Hebrews 9 tells us why church for us is not about that. It's about knowing Jesus through his word and then responding to him in prayer and praise. Which brings us to the final part of our passage. So my third heading, the better covenant. This is verses 15 to 28. See, the point is, there is now a new covenant There is now a new way to relate to God. So do not act like you're still under the old way. Look at verse 15. It says, Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 
God promised that he would bring a new covenant and that's what Jesus has brought for us. And under the new covenant we receive, I hope you see it there, an eternal, there's the time word again, an eternal inheritance. It's that once and for all. Because Jesus' death has paid for our sins once and for all, our sins are forgiven once and for all, and so nothing can take away our eternal inheritance, our place in God's kingdom. But do you notice how much in this whole chapter, do you notice how much it talks about blood? In fact, do you notice just how much blood there was under the old covenant? Going to the tabernacle or the temple wasn't for the faint-hearted. Uh, there was blood everywhere. Now, now I can't, I can barely handle getting my needle, you know, because of the thought I might see a little bit of my blood. I don't know that I would have been able to handle going to the tabernacle. I would have been one of those people, I'll, I'll stay outside happily, you know, happy not to be a priest. Now, we've seen already that blood was partly to pay the price for our sin. That's why there was so much blood. Sin deserves God's judgment. The wages of sin is death. And so the animal was sacrificed in our place. But the blood served another purpose. And it's what we read about in our Exodus reading before. I think Liz read that one for us. The other thing it did in the Old Testament was ratify the covenant with God was the equivalent of our handshake or, or signing the contract. When God made the covenant with Moses, it was sealed with blood, was sealed with sacrifices. So look down at verse 18. It says, that is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. Do you see how graphic it was? He basically threw blood all over the people. And that blood, that sacrifice, showed you the seriousness of this covenant. It showed you the seriousness of the promises being made, the seriousness of this agreement with God. And as we've seen a lot already, the blood symbolized the forgiveness and the washing clean that came at the heart of the covenant. Well, the sacrifice that ratifies our new deal with God, the sacrifice that ratifies our new covenant is the blood of Jesus. Do you remember at the Lord's Supper, you can read about it in Mark 14 later on if you like. The night before Jesus died, he gave them the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he was pointing them forward to the cross, to what was about to happen. He was talking about how his death would pay the price for their sins. But then he gave them the cup and he said, this is my blood that establishes the new covenant. He's saying, just like all that blood Moses splashed around back in Exodus, well, this is the blood that gets splashed around now. It's my blood not the blood of, of goats and lambs and calves. Jesus' death has brought a new covenant. It's brought a new deal. So that anyone who trusts in Jesus can know that they are forgiven and anyone who trusts in Jesus has an eternal inheritance. And the point of Hebrews chapter 9 is, how much better is that new covenant than the old one? The new covenant promises us total forgiveness once and for all. And the new covenant gives us a place in God's eternal kingdom once and for all, if we will just trust in the blood of Jesus. Now, as I said at the start, all of this is interesting and hopefully you've been struck by the significance and the wonder that it is to be under the new covenant. But as we close, I want to draw out why is this so important? 
I did have a joke during the week. I think the people on the cleaning roster think this is pretty important because they don't have to clean up the blood of goats and lambs every Sunday uh, after church. And, get, and everyone's happy they don't have to have a shower when they get home from church because they've been splashed with blood. That is only because of Jesus. That's only because of Jesus that we don't have a, a religion of ritual and sacrifice like under the old covenant. Uh, who knows what they'll get up to at Kids Holiday Club this week. But, but normally that's the case. Now I joke, but there is a seriousness to what I'm saying. Do not forget, you come to God through Jesus. You come to God by listening to his word and responding in faith, not through priests, not through rituals. Do not ever forget that. But the big point of this passage, and one I want us to take away, is you cannot overstate how important, how massive the death of Jesus is. And that's where this chapter finishes, down in verses 26 to 28. So look with me at these last three verses. It says, verse 26, but now he, Jesus, has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. I keep stressing those words, once and for all, one time. Jesus died one time to remove our sin. And that act, when he died on the cross, has changed everything. Not just for Christians, but for all of history. Do you see how it says there that Jesus died at the end of the ages? What's that talking about? It's saying Jesus' death has brought history to a close. Every so often I read one of those books, you know, 50 men that have changed history or 50 events that have changed history. And they talk about Christopher Columbus discovering the new world or, or the first atom bomb being dropped or whatever it is, all really important events, irrelevant compared to the death of Jesus. Jesus's death ended time as we knew it up to that point. Time as we had known it up to that point has come to an end. Everything now is an addendum, an add-on to that first appearance of Jesus. That's how important the death of Jesus is. And because of that, we are now waiting for what must inevitably follow. That's the point of verse 27. Look at verse 27. It says, and just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment. That's the Bible's equivalent of the old saying, the two great certainties in life are death and taxes. But it's saying, no, the two great certainties in life, you can get out of your taxes. The two great certainties in life are actually and have always been death and after that judgment. But there are still, and they are still the great certainties if someone does not trust in Jesus. The two great certainties of life, if without Jesus, are death and judgment. But if you know Jesus... There is now another great certainty, which is the return of Christ to bring salvation. So look at verse 28. Just as death and judgment are certain, verse 28, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See, under the old covenant, they would stand outside the tabernacle waiting for the high priest to come back out of that inner room wondering every time has he been successful or did he die in there in the presence of God has he made that sacrifice for us for another year now we are waiting for Jesus to come back from the heavenly throne room and bring salvation to us who are waiting for him but we are certain of its success that's what it is to be a Christian isn't it firstly we look back we trust in the once for all death of Jesus to pay for our sins. But then secondly, to be a Christian is for long, to long for Jesus to return. 
to long for Jesus to come back and to live our life waiting for that, waiting for his return. That's why so much of Jesus' teaching is about being ready for him to come back. Have you noticed just how many parables are about what are you going to do while you wait? Will Jesus find you waiting for him or will he find you distracted? Will Jesus find you storing up treasures here or storing up treasures in heaven? Will Jesus find us using the talents he's given us for his glory or for our own? Jesus tells parable after parable to make that point. And the wonderful thing is, because of Jesus' death, we know that he is returning to bring us salvation. Do you see that in verse 28? He is returning to bring us salvation, not judgment salvation for people found trusting in him so let's be people who are found waiting for jesus that's what we want to be let's pray our heavenly father we thank you that the new covenant is so superior to the old we thank you that jesus has paid the price for our sins once and for all winning us an eternal inheritance so father we pray that we would never lose sight of how wonderful that is and we would wait for him to return to bring salvation. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.